And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. That's uh, somewhat innocuous sounding, or obnoxious as the case may be, sounding bit of music might seem to have come from some major Hollywood spectacle. Or maybe even serve as a great theme song for this show some days. But in fact, it is the theme from one of the best-selling video games of all time, Call of Duty. And I've always marveled at those that will talk about what a wonderful teaching tool that computers can be, or television, and that children can watch a program like uh, Nat Geo and come back with all kinds of great facts and having expanded their horizons and understanding of life and the world and how engaging the computer can be as an educational tool. And yet, out of the very same mouths will come, well, there's no influence whatsoever of violent video games on children. How can you dare even suggest such a thing? Well, which is it going to be, folks? Can media, in particular television and interactive uh, uh, games and so forth, can they teach children or are they not teachers at all? Joining me now with some insights is Dr. Jane Anderson. She served for many years as a pediatrician at Mount Zion Center for uh, UCSF. And uh, Dr. Anderson, always a delight and an education to have you join us on the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me. <laughs> what, what about this debate? I, I just I never have quite understood, Dr. Anderson, how we can, out of one side of our mouth, suggest that television and computers are a wonderful teaching tool, and the other one say that they, at the same time, have no influence on children who will spend sometimes hundreds of hours over the course of a month engrossed in violent video games that have no other purpose than racking up points killing people. Exactly. It's sort of why why do companies spend two point five, you know, million dollars for a thirty second commercial on the Super Bowl if they don't think it's going to influence our behavior. Precisely. So there the interesting thing for me is that there is so much new information on brain research. And researchers are now using brain scanning tools such as MRIs to evaluate children and teenagers uh, before and after and sometimes during um, the time that they're playing video games to see what happens. So we now have real brain data that shows that areas of our brain that are linked to desensitization to violence are activated during violent video games. We have more longitudinal studies that show us that children who play more video games are more likely to engage in violent behavior. And it doesn't mean that every child who plays video games is going to end up more aggressive, but it certainly plays into the tendencies, and there are a lot of reasons for it. Um, Violence uh, during video games is not just learned and demonstrated, it is repetitively practiced over and over again until you get it right. And then that violence is rewarded, so you get, um, you get to uh, go to higher levels or you get expanded tools of violence, so you get rewarded for your behavior. And, um, and so the violence becomes justified and it becomes, quote, fun. And then worse than that, it's what we call many of the games, like Call of Duty, Mortal Kombat, others, Doom. They are first-person player video games. In other words... When we think of Pac-Man, it was like take a you know take a joystick and make the you know little Pac-Man guy move. Um, you weren't actually Pac-Man, but the first-person player games, you are actually the player, and you see the world through the player's eyes. And that's why 
Um, some of the school shooters had never held guns before. The kids in, um, I believe it was Mississippi, had, in Pearl, Mississippi, that student had never held a gun before, but he'd practiced on video games, and so he was able to have direct hits to students who were running, but he got them with one shot and killed them, which is, you know, better than most, you know, police agencies or soldiers can do, but well, he'd been practicing. Well, and we've seen cases where military, including our own, um, are are extremely interested in talking to uh, potential recruits who have very high marks in video gaming because these same individuals who, as you point out, often have no experience shooting an actual weapon whatsoever, and yet when the gun is put into their hands for the first time, demonstrate remarkable levels of marksmanship. Why? Because the ability to load, reload, aim, and so forth, they've practiced all of that sometimes thousands and times over. I mean, in often cases, uh, Dr. Anderson, I would imagine just in terms of overall experience, albeit not with a real weapon, but still their level of experience is equal to or exceeds even what the police get on the firing range. Oh, sure. I mean, there. Th- one of the studies is from 2004, so it's old now. But boys between 8 and 13 years of age were playing 13 hours a week of video games, and most of those are violent. So although not all video games are violent, 10 of the top 20 game sellers are violent. And it is a multi-billion dollar industry, $11.7 billion um, we're spending. So I always like to tease and say, don't tell me we don't have enough money to do X, Y, (laughs) Z. Excellent point. You make reference to a number of these studies that are out there, the growing body of evidence that suggests that, of course, there's a connection to violence after they've seen and been programmed uh, by this kind of so-called entertainment. I'm curious to find out what the brainwave activity is showing, and most importantly, what needs to be the warning word here. Even after the heels of events like Sandy Hook, we're teaching our children that violence is entertainment, in real life, when we engage in wars that we do, we teach our children that that's the way adults settle disputes. And then when our kids grow up and turn the guns on us or act out violently against us, we wonder what happened to little Johnny that maybe because he wasn't breastfed as a child, he's acting this way. We've trained these kids to behave like this. Why are we, as a society, surprised Rhetorical question. Better put, what can we who understand it and get it do to overcome all of this? We'll continue with more of our conversation with Dr. Jane Anderson as Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. So the um, 5 or $6 billion a year video gaming industry says that their, um, their entertainment has no influence on children and violent activity whatsoever. Of course, they would probably have uh, upwards of five, six billion reasons why they would say that. Dr. Jane Anderson with us today with a bit contrarian insight on this topic. Dr. Anderson, you mentioned about this growing body of evidence, and I know there have literally been thousands of studies that have tied in uh, the, the impact of prolonged exposure to violent video games and the degree to which children who have a history of that as a form of entertainment 
acting out in aggressive behavior, involvement in a violent manner with the authority, so on and so forth. What's the response to all of this? What should it be? I mean, we've been talking about this for years and years and years. Outside of parents waking up to certain realities, is it time for the government to begin interceding here and saying, you know what, just like we won't allow kids to see certain classifications of movies, we're not going to allow them to engage in certain classifications of violent video games? Well, you know, um, as much as I'm a conservative politically and I don't like government intrusion generally, um, I think if we compare it to, uh, just like you said, you know, if we compare it to like accessing alcohol or pornography or going into an X-rated movie, I think we can set some limits on children and adolescents. They are still under adult sort of authority, and, and I hate to use the word control, but should be <laughs> under control. So I think, yes, you know, California tried it. We, they passed a law to uh, limit the um, access of teenagers to <clears throat> the most mature rating or the most violent um, video games, but it was defeated by the Supreme Court as a right to um, freedom of speech. Um, but I think if we can limit, you know, sale of, of pornography, I think we can limit the sale of violent video games. But I really would encourage parents, um, until that time, <laughs> uh, they really have to be aware of um, the, the violence in the video games. And a lot of times it's not noticeable at the lower levels. If they're sitting next to their, you know, uh, teenager, they need to see, well, what's at the higher levels? And I want to really point out to all parents that boys are so susceptible. Uh, the way the boys' brains develop and their exposure to, to testosterone in utero at 12 weeks gestation, their brains develop differently, and they learn by competition and repetition. And that's exactly what video games are. So they're much more likely to become addicted and be influenced by the video games. So... For everybody, limit them, but especially for boys. And, you know, even parents of toddlers out there, the parents of toddlers who are listening and you're probably thinking, oh, well, you know, my kid's not affected by this. You know, you're handing them your iPad, your iPhone to keep them entertained, you know, while you're in the car or at the doctor's office, and you are teaching them that screen time is entertaining and you're not doing what we, we used to do as parents, talking to them while you're, you know, in the car and playing word games and I spy out the window and, you know, helping them be creative and problem solve. And when they're at home, get outdoors and do things outdoors. There's so much that of life that our children are missing out on because um, they're, they're indoors playing video games. So I'd really encourage parents to be aware Keep computers, video games, consoles, everything out of the kids' bedrooms. We have documented evidence that children who have computers and TVs and games and stuff in their bedrooms, they do worse in school, they have more problems with obesity, they sleep less, they have more behavioral problems. Like, there are things that parents can do. You know, and the other thing that dawns on me is you were sharing the notion of not engaging children in, in the healthy way, that, that kids of my generation, we had no choice. None of this stuff existed in those days. I think we barely had the electric light. Uh, but we, we tend to then train kids to be very inward-looking as opposed to outward-looking. There, there's no sense of wonder and awe about the world around them. It's all limited to, you know, the 13-inch diagonally measured screen of the computer in front of them. And, you know, I, I think that, that that, you know, not only leads to a tremendous degree of, of, of a false, distorted 
sort of just two-degree, uh, two-dimensional, rather, view of the world uh, in spite of the best efforts at 3D. But, but then, too, Dr. Anderson, I mean, isn't there a degree to which there is a chemical high that kids get off of this, not just as they're advancing and they're making more points and they're able to, you know, engage in, in, in more points for more kills and things of this sort, but aren't we kind of – there's got to be sort of a, a brain chemical reaction to engaging in this violence through a video game. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, that's, that's where addictions come in, and there are definitely, you know – Teenagers who, and, and young, especially young, young, men, young men who are addicted to video games. And the addiction comes from the pleasurable response. And unfortunately, th- there's, there's like a gate in our brain, and it's only going to let through certain sensations. So, for instance, if I'm sitting here, I'm not paying attention necessarily to where my feet are or what smells are in the room or whatever. The brain... Um, determines what is sensational, what is new, what is innovative and creative, and it lets those sensations through, which is why you have to have sort of different, more creative, worse violence at the higher levels using worse weapons because that keeps that excitement and that adrenaline going, and it allows your brain to take in that sensation, and then it stimulates your dopaminergic system and um, that's what contributes to this need for more and more. No, just as much as we see the same thing played out in real life, that oftentimes children who engage or, or adults who engage in violent behavior then do new, need to go higher and higher exactly. and higher in order to re- receive sort of the, the same kind of uh, chemicals uh, in, uh, enjoyment out that's of it. That's exactly right. So it, it ought to be easy for parents to connect the dots, folks. So let's start connecting the dots. Now, urging our government at the state level and federal level to start putting bans and restrictions and tighter controls on this, age restrictions, things of that sort is very important. But I guess at the end of the day, uh, Dr. Anderson, it really comes down to the parents, doesn't it? It really does. And the video game industry does have ratings on the video game. So pay attention, you know, look on the box. You know, does it say E for everyone or does it say M for mature audiences only? And it will say on there if it's sexual, if it's violent, if it's, you know, um, if there's foul language, it'll say on there. So look and read. Um, Teenagers tell you their parents might set rules for the TV viewing, but they don't set rules for video game playing. Well, set some rules and set some guidelines. Meet with the teenagers. Hey, what do you think you're doing when you're, you're playing video games? What, be, what activities are you not participating in? Oh, you know, you're not outdoors exercising and playing on a team. And boys, by the way, learn so much about the real world by playing on a sports team. So, you know, get your, and girls do too, but boys more so, get your guys out there playing, um, you know, reading, being creative. You know, it used to be kids would go outdoors and create the rules to a game, and they'd be creative. You know, you be this, I'll be that. And now it's just, you know, I'll sit here and sit side by side with my friend, and we'll both, you know, play video games together. It's like, no, there are so many wonderful alternatives, and the evidence is overwhelming in so many arenas of life, whether it's the physical development of the child, the emotional development, the cognitive development, even developing empathy and compassion, our brains develop that by looking at someone else's facial expression. Well, you can't see those changes when you're in front of a screen. 
how far we've come from the day and age when I was a kid and they couldn't get us to come back indoors, and today we can't get them to go outdoors. Our thanks to Dr. Jane Anderson for being with us in this segment of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. How many believers today, maybe, maybe privately you might even admit this for yourself, you can tell people what you believe, you just can't tell them why. We're going to talk a bit about that today as we meet a very special guest, certainly a very familiar voice to KFAX listeners. He's heard weekday mornings at 7.30 a.m. here on KFAX, senior pastor at Parkside Church in Cleveland and Alistair. Great to have you on the program. Thank you, Craig. It's very kind of you, and uh, it's, a, it's a treat always to talk with you. My goodness, 30 years. Uh, <laughs> the Lord has done some amazing things over the course of the last three decades. Could, could you ever have imagined when you came from uh, Scotland with your, your wife and young family all that time ago that, that the Lord would have taken you in this direction? No, I, I honestly couldn't. And uh, it seems in some ways as though it was only yesterday. Time has gone by so quickly, as you say. And yet uh, these have been great and privileged years. And I really wouldn't want to change very much about them at all. It's been a peculiar joy to, uh, first of all, serve this congregation and have them be so long-suffering as to put up with me for three decades. And uh, <laughs> and then the radio program on top of that is a, is a, is a wonderful opportunity that uh, we certainly are uh, humbled by and don't take for granted. Well, and we don't take it for granted either, Alistair, because I think uh, many of us um, recognize the importance for a ministry such as yours that in in the 30 years has moved, I think, consistently and critically so, more and deeper into the arena of a, a Christian apologetics, of which, my goodness, if there was ever a day and time when we needed Christians to be prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within, this is it. Yeah, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And I was listening to your introductory comments, and uh, I, I agree with you entirely. And uh, a lot of the uh, a lot of the fault, if there if there is an inadequate preparation on the part of uh, uh, Christian people, uh, a lot of the fault has to lie with those of us who are pastors, because our role is to prepare God's people for works of ministry, and uh, part of the ministry is the ministry of proclamation and. Uh, so uh, we don't want to chide ourselves too much, but we take seriously the peculiar challenges that are represented uh, in uh, the culture here in America, particularly in, and expressly so just in the last few days. Well, and certainly, you know, I think all of us perhaps begrudgingly can agree that there have been um, areas lacking in the modern-day American pulpit. But that said, the people in the pews have to take a little bit of responsibility to this, too. And I think about uh, a wonderful focus that you bring. I was just going through the pages of um, the book that you've co-authored with Sinclair Ferguson, Name Above All Names. And I just, for the benefit of the audience, let me just quote um, a couple of opening lines here. Alistair writes, Jesus Christ has been given the name above all names. The names assigned to him begin in Genesis, end in Revelation. Taken together, they express the incomparable character of Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Reflecting on them better prepares us to respond to the exhortations of Scripture, to focus our gaze upon him, and to meditate on how great he is. Then Alistair continues, Being able to think long and lovingly about the Lord Jesus is a dying art. The disciplines required to reflect on him for a prolonged period of time and to be captivated by him have been relegated to a secondary place in contemporary Christian life. Action, rather than meditation, 
is the order of the day. Sadly, too often that action is not suffused with the grace and power of Jesus Christ. Boy, if anything could could handily sum up some of what we see in the trends taking place in, in the church in specific and in our society at large, that, that certainly summarizes it. Well, yeah, I think it's a, <laughs> I think it sounds so good, I'm pretty sure that must be Sinclair. <laughs> <laughs> but it's right on the mark because we we don't ponder the word the way we used to. No. And to reflect on Jesus Christ, to sit and imagine spending hours just pondering about the amazing gift of God's grace that, that God would be so passionate about his love for the creation that had nevertheless offended him so, and yet still he was willing to send his only begotten son to die on our behalf. Such a greater love mankind has never known. And and I think that observation in name above all names is right on the mark that we've, it, we've lost the capacity or the desire or the heartbeat to want to ponder and study on that. And I imagine if we would recapture that ability, how the church could turn the world upside down. Yeah, I mean, I I think that, you know, if you take the average person coming to church, they're, they're not asking the question, where is Jesus? They're asking, where am I? Mm. And uh, there's a sort of man-centered orientation to even the study of Scripture and even the way in which uh, the Bible is taught that sort of reinforces notions that are you know, sort of immediately appealing, but they don't have any long-lasting value. They're not going to stand uh, in the in the challenges of, of uh, time when a culture as, as ours turns increasingly secular and uh, the Christian church begins to uh, face the challenge of living as a minority uh, in, in the culture, which has not been uh, part and parcel of the American psyche, at, at least until this point in time. How much of this really pivots on the church, its strength, its understanding of God's Word, its ability to make disciples when we talk about the direction or the condition of, of culture and society at large? Well, you know, church history makes it fairly clear, I think, Craig, that uh, that the collapse of the church has always been internal. You know, it, it has always been able to handle the, the challenges of persecution, the blood of the martyrs being the seed of the church. And when the prevailing drift on the outside has been at its most intense, uh, then the people of God have rediscovered who they are, what God expects of them, and they've they've rallied to the challenge. Um, but but the real danger is the the danger of a sort of internal uh, erosion and a, a collapse in confidence, a loss of confidence in the in the relevance and in the truth and in the power of the good news itself and. Again, many many people who pay lip service to to Jesus uh, will be uh, really uh, struggling to to stand up to the, the the exclusivity of the claims of Jesus that there is only one mediator between God and man, and that is Jesus. That there is only one name by which men and women may be saved, and that is in the name of Jesus. And the the, the drift in culture in in our um, uh, sort of deconstructed use of language and our understanding of history is so dominant that uh, it, it's absolutely imperative that uh, those who profess the name of Christ uh, really dig in and understand just what it means for them to be in union with Christ and what a man in, uh, or a, mo- a woman in Christ really is. 
If you've just joined our conversation tonight, Pastor Alistair Begg with us on the program. He, of course, is the host of Truth For Life, heard weekday mornings at 7.30 a.m. We're going to take a brief time out. When we come back, more of our conversation, we dig down into the baseline importance of what it means to truly be a disciple of Christ as our conversation with Pastor Alistair Begg continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. Pastor Alistair Begg on the program tonight. More information on the web about the broadcast and ministry at truthforlife.org. That's truthforlife.org, the broadcast weekday mornings at 7.30 right here on KFAX. You know, we hear these days, Alistair, churches that have huge crowds and folks that will get up in the platforms, uh, on the pulpit rather, and will share uh, platitudes and nice stories and things of this sort. It seems, though, that on an ever-increasing basis, preaching about the blood of Christ, the atonement, preaching about the need to count the cost of what it truly means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is something that that seems to be glaringly absent. Well, yes. You know, I think... um it's always dangerous to generalize, and I know you understand that too. Um, yeah, I think we've gone through a real, a, a real period of time in which, you know, that idea of the way to make sure that we don't offend anybody is to uh, dilute things to the point of uh, pretty well tastelessness. And, um, you know, when um, the old uh, Scottish theologian spoke to the Yale Divinity students, uh, uh, James Stewart, in, in 1952, uh, he warned them, 52, which is 61 years ago, about what he referred to as a, a, a theologically vague and harmlessly accommodating kind of Christianity, which he said was absolutely useless. Mm. And, you know, I, I think we're seeing the evidences of that now. And one of the one of the encouraging things for me as somebody who's now moved into, you know, um, my 60s is to see how many young men, though, are coming through in uh, various places in the country, and who have really fastened on to the idea that uh, if we're going to take seriously what it means that Jesus is Lord, then we have no right to tamper with or to dilute or to try and redefine the claims of Jesus, but we must just state them as they are. And of course, to fail to do so really uh, sort of strips the gospel of its life-changing power, doesn't it? Well, of course it does. I mean, the me- I mean, in, in first century Corinth, Paul knew that, uh, you know, if he gave the people what they wanted to to receive, whether it was the Jew or the Greek, then they would receive him with open arms. Uh, But the one thing that uh, that they were unprepared for is, um, you know, the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. There certainly seems to be, as we look at society today, uh, Western culture, there still seems to be a desire and interest in spiritual things. I, I think that sense of, of man's deep, innate longing uh, to be connected with God is there. We just, on an ever-increasing basis, don't know how to define it, and we head out to many false sources to try and address it or satisfy it, be it through pagan religion or the occult or whatever the case might be. Um, and and yet, so we see still a strong hunger, a strong spiritual desire, but it seems as if fewer people are really turning to Christianity, perhaps because we're not sharing the message with the kind of clarity and relevance that is needed to pierce people's hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit and and present a gospel that people can look at and say, wow, there's real power behind this. 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's really helpful, Craig. I, you know, we have an Australian friend who visits here, you know, every few years. And I remember the last time he was here, he made a comment concerning, you know, sort of American Christianity. And, of course, we want to be as guarded with Australians as we should be with Scotsmen. But uh, <laughs> he, he, you know, he said that he, he, he sensed a tone in American Christianity which was, which was a tone of admonition rather than a tone of mission. So that mm. we were going to the culture to admonish them for everything that was wrong, uh, you know, in their belief system and in their expressions of their understandings. And I think it is an important thing to realize that uh, Jesus never, ever, um, he never deviated from the clarity of his message. And yet the way in which he approached Zacchaeus or the way in which he approached the woman at the well, you know, is is a masterful illustration to us of the way in which uh, we ought to be prepared to to speak to people on the on the troubled seas of life. Have we missed the mark then to a great degree in the sense, Alistair, that I think of the the wave of evangelicalism uh, getting involved in the body politic in a significant fashion, first in the late 1970s and, and certainly in through the decade of the 1980s and into the 90s, not to suggest at all before listeners flood the phone lines here and I get in trouble, that, that we don't have an obligation as believers to vote and be involved in this business of self-governance. I believe that we do. And yet, oftentimes, it seemed as if there was a time in which we exchanged our involvement in the body politic for the realization that if we're going to change the world, we have to change hearts. You really can't affect change of heart by making political change. Yes, things and work needs to be done. Certainly the evidence of the um, uh, what's been coming out of Washington, D.C. in the last couple of days proves that. Yet at the end of the day, the real power is the, is the changed heart. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Because we do want to make sure that, that each of us are seizing the privileges and responsibilities of living in a democracy like this and making our voice heard and standing up for, uh, you know, moral rectitude and for, for biblical values and so on. But, um, you know, I, I think it's probably too soon to make these determinations, and I'm also fearful of overstepping my bounds here. But if you think back to... Well, I've been here three decades, so I get here right around the time I think that the moral majority and uh, and that whole movement is you know is is coming to the fore and doing what it's done and you know it's gone all the way around. But you know, I think we have to say that it actually it really hasn't achieved its objectives. Mm. It's been it's it's been unable to to do this. I mean, we we're we're talking now. Uh, the day after the Supreme Court, you know, passes down what is it certainly couldn't be any any anything other than um, uh, a testimony to to immorality and to the the the, um, the the very reverse of the things that were angled for and labored for. And I actually am quite excited about it, though, Craig. I I'm not uh, despondent. I'm not wringing my hands. I I think that. There are certain things that are bad for our country that may well prove to be good for the church. Mm. If we if we recognize that, uh, as we must, that God is sovereign over these things, that he is the one who sets people up and he is the one who brings them down. Um, he doesn't do that in a vacuum, and therefore our voice must be heard. But we have to recognize, too, that, you know, our view of the world is is a much larger, vaster conception of what is going on. We're actually affirming the fact that Jesus Christ is not only a resurrected uh, Savior, but he is an ascended king, that he rules over the cosmos. 
and that the providence of God is such that nothing happens except through him and by his will. That's basic biblical Christianity, which, of course, challenges a worldview that is deistic or pantheistic, uh, which, of course, is, you know, uh, both both perspectives are prevalent in, in our contemporary society. So that really takes us back then to the centrality of his lordship, and maybe time, as you point out, for some introspection of the church, as much as it's easy to become dismayed by these events— morally, politically, even economically that's been occurring in our country and in, in sort of the, the micro and globally in the macro, to understand that for the church, focusing back on teaching and prayer and giving ourselves to evangelism and to worship and giving to the poor and, and certainly discipleship, if we can get back to those key things, then I think God can indeed have us in the position where he can better use us to influence culture and society around us. Yeah, you know, I mean, if you think about, for example, an era like, uh, you know, the 18th century awakening with Whitfield, yes. you've, you, all, you always have strong, strong preaching. Uh, Dwight L. Moody, you know, apparently didn't have very many sermons, but nobody misunderstood him when he spoke. And he combined, as did Spurgeon in Victorian England, um, a real commitment to the good news, the proclamation of the good news, combined with expressions of good deeds so that both of them were engaged in in the social um, dimension of their immediate environment, whether it was in Chicago or in London. Both of them were involved with orphanages, and yet they did not for a moment confuse the necessity of people turning to Christ in repentance and faith with uh, the the good and necessary outflow of Christian uh, living, that that uh, cares for the, for those who are least and last and left out. If there could be one singular message that is central to your heartbeat, the one message that you'd like to get across to every man and woman who has named Jesus as Lord and Savior, what would that be? Wow. Oh, well, I, I think I, if I just apply it to myself, I mean, I, I think to fully understand that, you know, when Paul says, one day at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to understand that that he's not talking there about that being an expression of devotion. He's talking about being an expression of his identity, that what he's saying there is that this this Jesus, as the apostles did post-Pentecost, this Jesus whom you crucified, God has made him both Lord and King, and therefore... I have no freedom to believe anything other than what he teaches me, and what he teaches me is left for me in the Scriptures. And I have no freedom to behave in any other way than that for which, to which I'm called. And that then, you know, impacts every area of our lives, uh, our vocation, uh, our sexuality, uh, our marriages, uh, our singleness, whatever it might be. And, you know, then then we have an opportunity to uh, to speak to people, and and often, uh, you know, the the attractiveness of it uh, ought to be found in the loveliness of Christ, mm. the compassion of Christ, the patience of Christ, and I think so often, if you if you take, for example, and sometimes the media has branded us in this way, and a few crazy people have have led to it, but but I think we do have to face the fact that we often come across as a rather disgruntled and angry bunch of people, uh, as opposed to a people who say that they have been born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. 
Yeah, you're right. It's often interesting if you talk to non-believers um, and get their opinion about Christians. Uh, they can give you a long list, a big litany of what it is that we are against. Right. And then when you ask them, can you tell us what Christians are for, there's silence. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and that speaks volumes, certainly. Yeah, it does. I mean, I, I, I you know, if you think about Jesus with the woman at the well, you know, what a, what a conversation starts. May I have a drink of water, please? You know, he doesn't... He he eventually gets to the point, you know, when he asks her to call her husband, and and she admits that, you know, she's had a number of husbands and she has a live-in lover. But that's not what that's not what he starts with. I mean, he's not sitting at the well with a big sign condemning, you know, her uh, her multiple relationships. He he starts by as uh, simply engaging her in conversation. Hey, we as the church can learn a lot from that example, that we might be better to engage the culture and society around us for the sake of the gospel by simply beginning with engaging others in conversation and, of course, ultimately understanding what it means to be a disciple, to count the cost. We sure appreciate your time, your faithfulness to the Lord, and the caliber and quality of your uh, teaching ministry. Thanks so much again for the time. There's Pastor Alistair Begg. Again, uh, his broadcast is weekday mornings at 730 here on KFAX. And uh, wow, 30 years of ministry at Parkside Church in uh, Cleveland. And what a blessing it is to have him as part of the ministry here at KFAX. And let me just say this. If Alistair's pulpit ministry has been a blessing to you, would you take a moment today and jot him a note? It's not about puffing people up, but, you know, sometimes it's good to know that you're making a difference, that what you're saying and what you're teaching and your heartbeat and your passion for God and for His Word is impacting lives. And if you would take a moment today to drop him a note, I know that he would certainly be blessed and encouraged by that. You can get more information about the ministry at truthforlife.org, truthforlife.org. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Media Group. All rights reserved.